And if you would please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 50, the last chapter in Genesis, you'll find it on page 52 of your pew Bible. That's Genesis chapter 50 on page 52 of your pew Bible. We come today to the last of our studies on the lives of the patriarchs. I sincerely hope and pray that God has blessed you uh, through this series. I know that I have been challenged repeatedly myself as I've worked through these texts. In the next week, I hope, uh, Lord willing, to do one more sermon that will seek to bring together some of the great lessons of this period of Scripture. But today we come officially to the end of our study in Genesis and to the end, really, of an era for several thousand years, for several thousand years since creation, God has been working in the world with individual men and possibly a few isolated communities. Men like Noah, Abraham, and Isaac have lived for God with the simplicity of a basic altar and prayer. They have no temple or distinct nation. With the exception of the mysterious figure of Melchizedek, there has been no identifiable priesthood. Instead, these men and women of faith practiced the simple worship handed down to them from Adam and from Adam to Noah and from Noah to Shem and his children. I hope you've seen how their lives in so many ways mirror our own. Paul notes this in both the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. Abraham, Paul says, was not technically a Jew when God called him. He was not circumcised until later. And so, Paul notes, he can be a father to us all, an example to us all, a spiritual dad to us all, to Christians who are Jewish and Christians who are Gentile. And that, I think, is one of the great values of this period. It is so timeless so universal in its application to our lives. Like the fathers, like the fathers, we struggle to live in a world that is not our home. We worry about the threats of unbelievers, both of their violence and the corruption that they want to sow in the lives of our family. Meanwhile, we fight with fear, anger, and lust, just as our flesh tries to undo the blessings of God in our lives. In talking with you over the weeks and in my own heart, I know that we do indeed get it. We get these people and we get their struggles, their pilgrim faith, and their pilgrim practices. But today in our text, that era comes to a close. As Jacob's 12 sons are nestled safely in Goshen, the time has come for a nation to take shape. And in a few generations, that a nation will emerge and the second great period of the Bible will begin. The age of Moses and of David and the prophets, a time when God still worked with individuals, but where he also guided a nation, a priesthood and a temple. For a time, God's people will cease to be sojourners, aliens in a land not their own. Instead, they will have a homeland for a while, but they'll lose it. They'll lose it only to learn faith all over again during the time of the exile. 
They will learn once again to seek a heavenly city. But before any of this can happen, before the curtain can fall on this era, Joseph must die. Joseph, the Messiah of Genesis, must die, be put into an ark, and await his own exodus from Egypt. Last time, we noted how Jacob experienced exodus after his death, how his sons took him to the homeland, the promised land of Canaan, and buried him there. Most scholars agree that the route, the route the brothers took, burying their father's body, was the same route Israel would take as they entered the land hundreds of years later in their own exodus. Jacob then has had his exodus. But what about Joseph and the family Jacob left behind? These are the final days of Joseph's life. If you would, please stand as we read together these days. Genesis 50 will begin in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in an ark in Egypt. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come this morning as these uh, guilty brothers came, uh, knowing the weight of our own sin and knowing that our hearts and our lives are prodigal. And we come thinking that maybe you'll receive us as servants, but as you have done through your son, uh, you kiss us and take us as children. And so we are children, the children of God, and we've come that you might teach us from your word. Now open our hearts, open your word, and speak to us as only a father can. And we ask it all in our elder brother's name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
Deep down, uh, deep down, I think, we all like our books, our movies, to end with some amount of resolution, some kind of happy ending, even if it's more of a, you know, realistic happy ending, uh, as opposed to the over-the-top kind. When you put down the book, whether it's fiction or truth, you want some sense that you've come to the end of something, the conclusion of something. Now, it's quite interesting, I think, how often, how often the books of the Bible, being real history and not myths, often end with cliffhangers, unresolved issues. Uh, the book of Revelation may be the only book of the Bible that has a true happily ever after ending in the fullest sense of the term. Most of the other books look with yet an unfulfilled hope to the future. And that is certainly the case with Genesis. Joseph dies in Egypt and not in the promised land. So many of the promises made to Abraham have been provisionally, provisionally fulfilled. He's the father of a quickly growing nation. That nation is already blessing the world. After all, Joseph has saved thousands and risen to incredible heights. The chosen family has a new and a safe and prosperous land to live in. But something is still wrong. Several things, actually. In these final two scenes of Genesis, Moses, the human author here, closes the book with a partial resolution. It isn't quite happily ever after with no conditions, but it has been designed, I think, by the Spirit to bring a measure of peace healing and rest to the chosen people. Joseph's life, you'll recall, was fraught with danger and destitution. But as the curtain falls on Genesis, the family is thriving, growing, safe and well off with a mighty leader, the righteous Joseph watching over them. To get us to this happy ending, Moses chooses two final scenes from the last years of Joseph's life. They were undoubtedly many other adventures, decisions, and events in the lives of the family. But these two last scenes resolve the major struggles in Joseph's life. First, in verses 15 through 21, God brings resolution to the painful struggle among the brothers. For several generations now, the family of God has been devastated by rivalries. Ishmael versus Isaac. Jacob versus Esau, and the ten brothers versus Joseph and Benjamin. This final scene shows them finally and truly at peace with one another. And then in verses 22 through 26 in your Bible, Moses gives us one last look at Joseph. In his will and testament, Joseph asked to be buried in a very particular way. Strikingly, Despite being married to an Egyptian woman, despite having children who were half Egyptian, of course, despite being fully immersed for almost his entire life, really since the age of 17, in Egyptian culture, music, and politics, despite the fact that he looked like, smelled like, dressed like an Egyptian, Joseph still dreams of another land and hopes in an ancient promise. It's a striking statement of faith and as striking as any you'll read in scripture. 
Let's look together then at these two scenes and the happy ending that Moses gives to us to Genesis. First, notice in verses 15 through 21, the reconciliation between the brothers that finally happens. Verse 15 begins by telling us that Jacob's death, dad's death, uh, left the brothers feeling anxious about their relationship to Joseph. While dad was alive, they were confident that J Joseph would not devastate their father by taking vengeance. But now they are worried that their time has finally come, that Joseph simply could not forget the level of treachery that they had shown. And so in verses 16 and 17, they tell Joseph that their father left a command. Please, they said, Jacob said, uh, forgive the transgression of your brothers. Now, I and I think most other commentators seriously doubt that Jacob actually gave this command. For me uh, personally, as I read the scriptures, I find it difficult to believe that Jacob that Jacob, who knew and loved Joseph so much, would have felt the need to leave a command like this. Jacob had seen, remember by now for many years, for almost 20 years, Joseph's care for his family. I don't think Jacob was worried about Joseph suddenly enslaving his brothers, but the brothers were worried. They even come here in the text and fall down before Joseph, once again fulfilling the dreams that Joseph had had. And, and notice verse 18, they offer themselves as servants, not as peers and not as brothers, but as servants, as if to say to Joseph, we are no longer worthy to be called your brothers, to enjoy the privileged status of your station in life. Instead, we offer ourselves as servants only forgive our transgression for the sake of our father and the sake of our God. Joseph's response is truly and really remarkable. Don't skip over it. He doesn't yell. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and say, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. No, he starts weeping. Now, why did he do that? Why not laugh at them for making something up or just maybe quickly reassure them. I mean, he does reassure them, but first he cried. Why? Here's why. Because the Bible isn't just a book about grand events in history. It is that, of course. But it's also a book that looks very deeply into the human heart and the human condition. That's God's holy book. It looks with unparalleled accuracy and depth into our lives and human existence. Sin, you see, is first and foremost an act of rebellion against God, cosmic treason, but it's also a blow against the people that we love. We drag our family, our neighbors, and our church down with us in our sin. We wound each other, sometimes deeply, and the chaos and pain was right there. It was right there, almost 20 years after their reunion. That's all it took. 20 years of living in peace. The topic comes up and tears. Do you have something like that in your own life? Something so raw that it can go unspoken for a decade and then a movie, a book, a conversation will bring it back 
and you're shattered. That's what sin and the effects of sin are capable of. That is the power of guilt and shame in our lives. These brothers were living under a terrible burden of unresolved guilt. If you go back to their initial moment with Joseph almost 20 years ago, when they first found out that it was him that they were dealing with, there were at that time tears and hugs. But there was not, as far as we know, a full and open confession of what they had done. This is the first time, without any reservation, that they have together as one acknowledged exactly what they did. And so Joseph weeps, and we weep in life. I think Joseph also weeps for another reason, which becomes clear as the verses play out. He weeps in the sadness, in the sadness that his own brothers are still frightened of him. Joseph had done everything he could possibly do to convey forgiveness to them. He had hugged and cried with each of them on the day he revealed himself. He had favored them with gifts on multiple occasions, even before they knew who he was. In other words, he had already forgiven them prior to them even knowing he was alive. He had brought them and their families to Goshen and set them up in the best possible situation. Together, the brothers had made the long and emotional trek back to Canaan to bury their father. Joseph had given, Joseph had given every assurance imaginable. Everything about Joseph, his whole way of life should have been an assurance to their hearts. They knew Joseph wasn't the kind of man to do this. But it's not until now that they finally begin to feel the weight lifted from their shoulders. As I read this, I immediately think of my own relationship with my own elder brother, Jesus. He has given you and me every assurance of his love and forgiveness. And yet we remain hesitant, overwhelmed at times with guilt and fear. When bad things happen in our lives, we wonder in the back of our minds, is this the revenge? Has he chosen now to get even with me for those sins? Maybe this is why there are so many verses in our Bibles on forgiveness. God knows that we have to hear it again and again, that we will always struggle to believe it. Maybe no passage is more memorable than that of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In that story, a son sins flagrantly against his father and family. He destroys himself and wastes his inheritance, impoverishing not just himself, but detracting from his family's wealth. Upon his return, the prodigal son speaks just like the brothers here. He says, I am your servant, father. I am not worthy to be part of the family, to be called your son. But our Jesus... Our elder brother is a Joseph. He takes us by the hand as the father does the prodigal. He gives us back our robe and our ring and kisses us. We would be content to be servants, but Jesus will have us as family. That is what Joseph did. That is why jo Joseph is weeping. And more importantly, this is what Jesus does for us. But just as important as what Joseph does, don't miss 
For he also tells us here why he did it. Why did he show such tremendous love and compassion? Where did he find the strength and the love to forgive and not just forgive, but embrace his brothers as family? Well, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Remember, uh, Joseph named his first son forgetful. That was his name because he wanted to forget what happened to him. He was traumatized severely by being sold into slavery by his own brothers. He worried also about what they might do to his other full brother, Benjamin. Then, just as he's beginning to make a home for himself in Egypt, just as he began to come up uh, from the miseries of slavery, his Egyptian family betrays him. And you remember the lustful wife of the house has him imprisoned. These things were powerful forces in Joseph's life. Remember, the Bible only gives us the highlights of Joseph's life. So don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand and think that Joseph dealt with all this, with all these things, quickly and easily or effortlessly. There were decades of struggle in the text here. Years of real and intense suffering. So how did he get here? How was he able to get through all of that? I mean, think of the the trauma and the misery of thrown in a pit, sold by your brothers. You become a slave. You live as slave. Get up out of slavery and then become a prisoner. I mean, that is a lot of trauma. How did he how did he get through this and to the point where he could love his brothers? Joseph tells us what liberated him from a life of victimhood, anger, and estrangement. Look again at verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Two worshipful, worshipful thoughts, two theological insights controlled Joseph's response and liberated him from fear and anger for the rest of his life. First, the most simple one, but most important insight any of us can ever have is this. We are not God. He may at times have wanted to wreak terrible vengeance on his brothers, but he says to them, am I in the place of God? You may remember the scene from the Lord of the Rings where Frodo wonders with some frustration, why someone hasn't just gone and killed Gollum by now. And and Gandalf turns to him, and it's these very memorable words, and says this to him, many that deserve to live, um, many that that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? And do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Along with this insight, I am not God and I don't have the right to take this vengeance, came another great insight in Joseph's life. Without sugarcoating what his brothers did, after all, he says here, they did mean it for evil. They very much did. And yet, he was not blind to the way in which God had used their evil for good. To use the words of Martin Luther Joseph understood that God had drawn a straight line with a crooked stick, that God had taken an act of horrendous sinfulness and used it to save the very people who perpetrated that act. 
And so here in verse 20, we have the Romans 8:28 of the Old Testament. God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph was liberated from his pain because of the grace of God. And that grace enabled him to rise above it and see God's working out of a great purpose. This is what we call in our church providence. Providence is God's sovereign and perfect control over all that happens in our world so that it works out in the end, though it may be miserable for decades, yet it works out in the end for our good and his glory. It's just so easy to say it, though, isn't it? To say to someone, God works all things together for good. But a day will come, a day will come for every one of us, every one of you, when we will, like Peter, deny that verse three times. If it hasn't happened yet for you, it will. And Jesus will be there for you after you've sinned that sin. And by the grace of God, this church will be there for you after you've sinned that sin. This was no casual theology. This was no armchair theology. This was theology down in the bones. Theology that holds you together when you don't want to go on anymore. How can you get this inside of you? This kind of confidence, especially in the face of horrendous suffering in your life? Well, the ultimate answer, God's ultimate answer to that question comes at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, sinful man did his worst. Jesus's own brothers, the Jews, crucified him with hate in their hearts. They meant it for evil. And yet in the very act of crucifixion, they, like Joseph's brothers, were making salvation possible for the world. Imagine standing in Jerusalem that day as Peter tells them it's happened. They've crucified. Christ has been raised from the dead. And Peter's giving that first sermon and he's telling them, you crucified your Messiah. You betrayed your brother But then he says to their joy, and you heard Elder Boyajan read these words, this was the definite plan of God. There is no sin you have committed. There is no sin committed against you that cannot be taken in the hands of God and made holy. How do I know the cross of Jesus Christ? When you realize who you really are, when you felt the depth of the treachery of your own heart, then your brother, the one who you have crucified by your sin, weeps for you and takes you in his arms. Well, you have to trust him, don't you? You have to believe that he will care for you and for your little ones. The old hymn says it well, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or, Jesus, Jesus, Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Joseph rose above these things, not because of self-help books or positive reinforcement from friends, but because two deep theologies were in him. A belief that his God loved him and meant the evil in his life for good. And the knowledge, the humble knowledge that he was not God and not in the place to take vengeance or even to fully understand the things that occurred to him. 
And so by the grace of God and through these two magnificent truths, the brothers were finally, really, and truly reconciled. Then in the final section, verses 22 through 26, we've come to the ending of Joseph's life, reconciled now to his brothers. We have his last words and his last hope. Joseph, you know, I've mentioned before earlier, he was married to an Egyptian woman. He wears the fashion of the Egyptians. We know that because that's why his brothers didn't recognize him at first. He looks, he smells, he eats and appears as an Egyptian. His whole family does. He's had the best of this life for the last 20 years, the very best of this life. And yet as he dies, he offers up a final prophecy in verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. That word visit is no ordinary word. The Reformed Study Bible, it's a wonderful study Bible, calls that word visit, describes it as a divine encounter. And I like that. That's what it was. It was an encounter, wasn't it, when God visited his people in Egypt. There was nothing like it again until the birth of Jesus Christ. God came in such remarkable power in the Exodus. Miracles unlike anything the world has seen before or since until Christ's arrival. Joseph dying, in his dying, sees through the veil of time. He sees that God who took him from the pit and made him Lord will not fail at any of his promises. He trusts the visions now. He knows who he has believed and that he is able. And so he says, don't leave me here. Don't leave me here. No matter how grand my tomb, no matter how big my pyramid, take my bones with you. Put them in an ark, literally in Hebrew. Now, fast forward your mind, hundreds of years, dancing and singing, the people of Israel, now maybe a million or more people, come up out of Egypt. And there, no doubt, at the front of the procession is an ark on poles. The bones of Joseph are going with the people. Who can stand against them? Who can stand against them when the pillar of fire is by their side and the ark of Joseph is in their midst? We too expect a savior from heaven. Brothers and sisters, one last great day of visitation awaits us. And we cannot be content until that moment. But don't be afraid. When our exodus comes, we'll take your bones with us. This time, the graves will explode as the resurrection of Jesus permeates all of the earth. We will need no ark because the Lord will come with a shout and a trumpet and the dead shall be raised. And finally, we too will go home. This is the happy ending, the truly happy ending of the world's story. But who can take such a mess? Who can take such a sick, twisted mess like this world and its history? Who can take that history and turn it into something good in the end? Who can bring good out of bad? Who can open a coffin 
and give life to bones and end the ultimate exile of death. Our God can, and he does on the day of his visitation. He is the God of happily ever after, and he alone can give the ending you are looking for better than you could have imagined. For it has not yet entered our minds, even your minds, the things our Joseph has planned for us on the day of his visitation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we too live in exile here. This place is not our home. It is torn by war and suffering of every kind. But we look with hope with the fathers to a heavenly city whose maker and sustainer is God. We thank you, Father, that through the blood of your son, our passport to that world has been sealed and our citizenship is now in heaven. Help us to walk with Joseph in faith that all that happens here to us will turn out in the end for good, for there will be a happily ever after for all your people in Christ. Help us to then to trust the one who leads us. For we pray and ask it in his holy name. Amen.